I want to start with a question, and I'm not going to shame you because that's what my talk is about, but I do need a show of hands. How many of you feel like you're inclusive, like you include others, like you include people? Nice. Thanks for the honesty. People are like, no, I don't include anyone. I'm exclusive. I'm exclusive. I'm an exclusive person. Everyone feels like they're inclusive, like they include others, like I feel that way. Um, I'm, I welcome everyone into my life unless I don't. <laughs> and I want to begin today by reading a quote from David Brooks. He's one of my favorite writers from the New York Times. He's written a few other books as well. Uh, and here's a quote. In the modern shame culture, we're off to a good start. In the modern shame culture, it allegedly values inclusion and tolerance, but it can be strangely unmerciful to those who disagree and those who do not fit in. This is an interesting time that we live in because everybody like you and I who are willing to raise your hand, uh, we feel like we're inclusive and everybody outside the walls of this building feels like they're inclusive. And, but you and I both don't need Brooks to tell us this because we know it to be true from this to be true of our own experiences. It, people can feel like they're inclusive but they can end up being very vicious to those who do not fit in. And as a culture, we can be primed to erupt with people who don't agree and ridicule people that don't agree with us anytime somebody stumbles. Uh, maybe you've heard the term cancel culture. Uh, has anyone not heard that term? Because I'm going to shame you. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you've not heard the term cancel culture, like it's anyone that stumbles, you're like, aha, we got you on that one. And even in the modern understanding of inclusivity, it can be quite exclusive if you don't agree with an individual's particular point of inclusivity. You understand what I'm saying here? Like, we're inclusive, and if you don't agree with our version of inclusivity, then you're excluded, which is really funny to me. So the value of inclusion in our culture almost leads us to be almost as exclusive as any other culture. And in fact, it's gone to another level where it's not enough to be included by you. In certain circles, you not only have to include others, you have to welcome them, advocate for them, you have to celebrate me, and if you don't, you're gonna be shamed for not doing so. To just include or to tolerate is not enough. You have to come to the point of almost welcoming someone into your heart like you would Jesus. And everywhere we look, around culture and inclusivity, we're either lavishing praise or we're condemning people through shame. So what are we to do? Because you're here on a Sunday morning, you came out to listen, you came out to hear some worship, uh, you are maybe in the wrong place altogether, this is a church. Uh, <laughs> and um, what are we to do? We're, we're trying to follow Jesus, and we were talking over the last month or so about what does it look like to share our life with Jesus with other people, meaning how do we share our faith? Like if our faith is real, if we believe Jesus rose from the dead, how do we actually share that with people? And right here, there's this issue of inclusivity and who we should share that with. And sometimes, even in our own understanding, our own bubble of inclusivity, we sometimes frame out who we're willing to share that with. Now, does Jesus provide us with an excellent example of how we can share with others with him? I mean, excuse me, the other way around, him with others? He does. And we're going to talk about it today. There's a few stories that we're going to take a look at. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, we see this 
It's the, it's the heart of the gospel of Jesus. And here's what we read in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. You can follow along on the screen. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. Chapter 15 opens with a bang. Big bang. This is a huge statement. Tax gatherers were multi-level organization people. They sponsor people who sponsor people who sponsor people, and it's only really the people at the top who make all the money, but as long as Rome was getting their cut, it didn't matter. These guys, that's what tax gathering was back then. And people in ancient Israel, ancient first century Palestine, they hated tax gatherers because tax gatherers would show up in their tricked-out G-wagon, 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 and they would roll out with their posse with some of their firearms and someone would hold the door for them and they'd wear fancy suits and they were with their thugs and they could come in to any situation and they could take as much money from you as they wanted as long as Rome got their cut. So people were like, they are the worst ever. And people hated them so much that they didn't even lump them in with sinners. So you see this, it says tax collectors and sinners. So people hated tax gatherers so much, they were like, they're their own category of bad. We're not going to insult sinners by putting them in the same category. And then there was everybody else. Luke calls them sinners. These were the group of people that uh, believed that God would never accept them because of their occupation or their lifestyle or because of their morality choices or their ethics, they were called sinners. And so the worst people in the entire ancient Jewish society are gathered to hear Jesus. And that's different than some of our church experiences. That's different than the perception that we get when we think of the local church. And frankly, it shouldn't be that. But what we see is that the true message of Jesus is magnetic. It's persuasive. It has something for everybody. And so the front row of this meeting is filled with society's worst people. You got the sinners and the tax collectors because the tax collectors can't be lumped together with the sinners because they're to their own level of bad and they got the Mercedes Benz as I explained before. And in the back row or in the balcony, no offense to any of you who are in our balcony this morning, <laughs> we're this group. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. I've said it twice. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So all this tension is being created in this moment. You have religious people on one side wondering how Jesus is going to respond to these sinners. And then you have all these sinners and tax collectors wondering, what's Jesus going to do now that the Pharisees and the religious people have shown up? What's going to happen? you got the good guys and you got the bad guys, both sides. They're both looking at each other. And JC, big dog Jesus, walks into the middle of that, seeing this tension, and he decides in that moment, I'm going to confront everybody. I'm going to confront everyone in this moment. And he tells a story, a series of stories. We're going to look at two out of three. We don't have time for three. I cut it for time. We're going to look at two out of three where he confronts both religious people and irreligious people. And this is what he says. Look at verse four. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found a lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so Jesus, in all of his genius, gets these two opposing groups who rarely agree with each other to agree by asking them a rhetorical question. If you lost your personal property, wouldn't you go out and look for it? Oh, yeah, Jesus. And wouldn't you be excited that you found your property? And wouldn't you go tell everyone that you found the property or the thing that you had lost? Well, yeah, I guess I would, Jesus. And understanding, Jesus understood something about regular people like you and me. And maybe you've lost something. Has anyone ever lost something ever in your whole life? Some people are raising two hands. I've lost everything. <laughs> I've lost it all. Have you ever lost something? And it goes like this. When you lose something precious, when you lose something important to you, it has your undivided attention, doesn't it? You are more passionate about finding the thing that you've lost than the thing that you never misplaced to begin with. Have you ever misplaced money? Have you ever lost your keys? How many of you have one of those clapper things for your keys or whatever? Is it called clapper? I don't know. No, it's like a tile. Is it called a tile? <laughs> clap on, clap on. How many of you have ever lost your phone? <laughs> Even for a second. Where's my phone? Like people get shaky when they... <laughs> Has anyone seen my phone? <laughs> You're not addicted. <laughs> have you ever lost the remote to the TV? <laughs> yes. I... <laughs> not me. I have. When you lose something, it's like front of mind. You're like, I've got to find the thing. All you can do is focus on finding the lost item. And so what we see here is that Jesus is making this amazing point. In the kingdom of God, there is more excitement and rejoicing and celebration and party time when something that was lost is found. And Jesus seeing that he has the crowd's attention. They're following along with him. He jumps right into a second story. He says in verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin." In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus, when he is talking here to the good guys, and he is, there's a bunch of sinners and tax collectors, he understood this reality. God, your Father in heaven, is more excited about a lost sinner He's more excited about a misfit. He's more excited for the person who's going to vote for the wrong candidate in 2024. He's more excited about the lost person returning to friendship with him than he is about the other 99 who were never lost to begin with. 
And here's what we learn about God through the lenses of Jesus. God could not love you more. And there's nothing you will do and nothing you could say that would cause God to love you less. And here's the corollary. If it's true about you, it's true for every other human being. Every person you know, every person that you don't know, every person you've ever gotten eyeball to eyeball with, every person who you like, every person who annoys you, every person who has the same cultural beliefs, and every person you wish would be banned from social media. God could not love him or her more, and there's nothing that he or she could do that would cause God to love him or her less. Nothing. Nothing. Let me put it this way. God never gets mad at lost things. Ever. Why do we believe this? Well, as disciples of Jesus, we believe in this simple fact. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, we believe that what he said must be true. And what he says is that your sin and your lostness cannot be dealt with on your own. You need Jesus and the power to take that away from you. But here's what we also believe. If Jesus rose from the dead, it means he has the power not only over sin, but over pain and diseases and even death. And if he, Jesus rose from the dead, it means that he has the ability to mend broken hearts. That he can heal the wounds we've experienced from others, including racism, or bigotry, or favoritism, or even the cloudy, undefined reality of systemic brokenness that we see in our culture. And if Jesus rose from the dead... That means that he can give you and I the mental and the emotional power to forgive others, others who have hurt us. And if Jesus rose from the dead, it means that he has given us, he can give us new hope for our relationships. And he has, that he has the power to reconcile races, that he has the power to reconcile different people who can't seem to get along. It means he has the power to call us to lay down our cultural rights to take up his new way of living. Also in Jesus, we see something radically revolutionary about inclusion and inclusive, inclusiveness and widening the circle. Jesus' followers, disciples of Jesus, are commanded to think and act differently towards those who think and act differently than you do. You see, Jesus is always widening the circle to include people who need to hear God and to include them in such a way that they actually can hear that message, people that aren't normally included. And here's the interesting thing. He brought together and he included people who thought they were right. The people that walked into Jesus' rooms whenever he was holding court, they thought that they were right. They thought that they were right spiritually. They thought that they were right politically. They thought they were right religiously. And people, when they came into those rooms, they had their convictions. They thought that the other people in the room were wrong. And in those moments, we see that 
That's where he widened the circle. When the Pharisees said, why would you include people like that? Jesus would say, why not? And when the tax collector said, are you sure it's okay that we're here? And Jesus would say, absolutely. Jesus did not create purity tests to determine in-groups and out-groups, to protect some and punish others, to shame some and to celebrate others. He didn't do that. And guess what? Neither should we. Instead, he demonstrated that all we need and everything that we can have comes from him. So let me ask you a personal question. Does your life widen the circle or does it tighten the circle? How does your attitude look when you interact with others? What do your actions or your words do? Do they bring life? Do they heal broken relationships? Do your words build bridges? Do your social media posts lead people to reconciliation, to build family and connection? Or do they perpetuate divisiveness? Do they reinforce shame culture? Do they destroy? Do your words and actions, do they create enemies? As disciples of Jesus, you and I are called and invited to widen the circle. So let me be very specific with you. We've got to prepare for the next couple years. It's going to be a wild one. Let me say this. Think of your politics and your culture, whatever it is. You have a moral responsibility to welcome people into your life who do not look like you, who do not think like you, and who do not vote like you. And here's why. One day, you and I will be dead. <laughs> I'm going to put the mic down. <laughs> Let's have the band come back up. One day, you and I are going to be dead. And there's going to be a new... Let's not focus on that part. One day, there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. And when we get there, it's not going to look just like me, and it's not going to look just like you. It will be full of people who look different, who come from different cultures, who approach social issues very differently during their earthly life. And the Bible says that's what the future is going to look like, and that you and I must live in light of that reality today. We don't have to, but isn't it amazing? If that's where things are going... Why wouldn't we live in light of that today? We live into God's future. And what is God's future? It's a multicultural, multi-ethnic. It includes Democrats and Republicans and some Green Party people. And all different types of people who approach the world from vastly different points of view that are very different from you and I. So this means that we begin... We begin today moving towards that future by being open to the possibility of friendships with people who are different than us, who don't look like us. It means that we pray with people who are different than us. It means we plan to serve the city or serve people in need who are alongside of people who are different than us. It also, but also, widening the circle means something more. Let me be very specific with you and give you very specific examples. When you shame somebody for any reason, and let's just use an, um, 
Let's just use social media. When you shame somebody or a group of people on social media for any reason, any reason whatsoever, when you shame or belittle a group of people on any hot topic discussion, you're actually tightening the circle. And when you mock the other side, I'm trying to read your faces to see if you'll tell me what side you're on. <laughs> but if you mock the other side because you can't fathom how they could support that particular candidate, you make the circle smaller. And when you make fun of segments of the population who aren't as smart as you, who aren't as educated, or they're not as thoughtful as you and your friends, you make the circle tiny. And when you use that slightly condescending tone with your friends about those people who are morally bankrupt because dot, 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 you fail to widen the circle. And when we go out of our way to tell our tribe, our circle, our friends, the people who believe the same things that we believe, if we go out of our way to tell them who they should and should not be connected to or associated with because of those people who are on the other side, we are not acting as disciples of Jesus. Do you know who we're acting like? We're acting like Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we have the potential in an even an irreligious and non-religious culture to do something that's very religious and morally bankrupt. Like, we're a religious minority here, uh, but the greater culture sometimes acts in very religious ways by including and not including people. And what we want to do is run from any kind of pharisaical behavior, if, even if it's religious or non-religious pharisaical behavior. And as disciples of Jesus, I got to shoot you straight. We have, we are not, we've never been commanded, we've never been told to virtue signal to our tribe. That's not our job. You have not been commanded to shame those who don't believe what you believe. And frankly, I, I don't care how right you are or how wrong or bigoted and biased they are. You and I have been invited to recognize our desperate need for Jesus, our true king, and to invite people and to widen the circle by including others who need to hear the message of Jesus. Any other attempts to withhold love, to demonize the other side, to reduce the other side as not being human, uh, that is not the way of Jesus. And we are commanded to reject that kind of thinking and that kind of behavior. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about debating or debating ideas. We need a strong, robust debate about what is true and not true. There is a logic and rationality to our world, which I think we should widely uh, uh, think of, about. And debating and thinking and challenging and persuading and standing up for justice and offering mercy to the poor, those are all good things. We have to seek those things. We have to seek justice. We have to seek racial equality in our country. We have to take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. We have to do those things. We have to engage in civil dialogue, especially with those with whom we disagree. Our country does need substantive debate. But Jesus followers are commanded to do so 
by also widening the circle and treating our fellow human beings with dignity and respect and love. Why? Because Jesus widened the circle for us. He died in our place. He dealt with our sin and our lostness, the very thing that we couldn't do for ourselves. So here's the deal. History has shown us over the last 2,000 years, where 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus and the way he spoke truth to power. And yet as direct and as confrontational as he was, he still found ways to widen the circle and welcome those to experience him who haven't experienced him before and experience the freedom that he could only he could truly offer. And as I just think about, like, we've been doing this, I mean, you could go back and, you know, listen to him if you haven't heard him. You could go back and listen to the other things we've been saying about, um, about how to share our life with Jesus. But until we get this right, until we reframe the way we think about our uh, political and social and cultural enemies, like, we're not actually living this out. Now, we can share techniques on, like, hey, you know, invite people over to your house, be a nice person. We've done all that, but widening the circle in our mind, in our heart, and giving our heart, allowing our hearts to be open to relationship with people that are different than us is essential if we want to see uh, life with Jesus spread into other people's lives. Our city, we are together because we're close, we all live close, but we're also very separate. We're very divided. And our city needs a different example. So I'm inviting us to widen the circle. That way we would be showing the outside world that our life with Jesus actually makes sense. That it's worth checking out. That it's worth exploring. I mean, I think we have an opportunity to participate in the progress of this country. But not so in a way that only includes those who just agree with us. So would you join me? Let's try to widen the circle, especially with people that are different than us. Make sense? All right. Why don't we pray? Dear God, I ask, uh, first and foremost, I, I confess that I haven't always widened the circle, and I haven't always included people that are different than me. And God, I ask that you would change me and that you would change the people who are open, who want to hear from you right now. And so I ask that you would come show us how to widen the circle in our hearts. Bring to mind the people that are different than us. Uh, show us how to uh, like actually just supernaturally create capacity in our heart for others. Why don't we all stand? <clears throat>